One of the roles of the Psalms is uh, not just to show us what the psalmist prayed. Though you can see quite a record of all kinds of different subjects they have prayed about. One of the roles of the Psalms is not just to show us what they prayed, but to demonstrate how the psalmist prayed in a way that shows us an example. There's an example setting function of the Psalms. We notice things like this. The psalmist's Turn in prayer to the Lord as their refuge. It's an example they have for us that they've set. They trust that God will keep his promises. And in reading their trust in the Lord, there is a strengthening effect it has on the believer as we come to be nourished by the Psalms. We see their example of believing that God will overcome the wicked. And so our hope for the righteous judgment of the Lord is stirred. We see their example that they pray about everything. They pray about health and bodily concerns. They pray about spiritual and salvation concerns. They pray about national and global concerns. They pray about political and agricultural and economic concerns. You read throughout the Psalms, you know what they call upon the Lord for His help and His glory to be displayed in? Everything. What an example this is for us. The psalmists have hope in the future. That God's justice will reign in all the earth and that His people will be vindicated. There's something about that example in prayer that when we read their prayers and we sing their psalms and we reflect and meditate on those words, our hope is stirred. One of the reasons the early church used the book of Psalms was because they give words for the mouths of the people of God. We come to God with hearts of praise and thanksgiving. There are psalms for that. We come to God with grief and sorrow in our hearts. There are psalms for that. We come needing strength and hope and encouragement There are psalms for that. So there are psalms for you. And in Psalm 17 this morning, in God's providence, we will reflect on this psalm in prayer of David. We notice in our our study of book one, book one covers Psalms 1 to 41. That's what we've been devoting the majority of 2023 on Sunday mornings to studying. And in book one, throughout our study so far, we have noticed that there are psalms that have connections with phrasing and themes with the previous psalm. Stuff with the psalm that comes after it. We look at Psalm 17 today and we notice there are links with previous psalms. In fact, Psalms 15, 16, and 17 all reflect on the protective presence of God. And they all have the same verb of not being shaken or slipping It's a relatively rare phrase, actually, in the Old Testament as a whole, but it appears in three psalms in a row, which seems to be an important theme that in chapter 15 and in verse 5, he who does these things will not be moved. And then we saw on Easter Sunday together in Psalm 16, in Psalm 16, that uh, in verse 8, because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. And in Psalm 17 and verse 5, My steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. We've noticed a series of psalms that highlight the confidence in the believer that they are held by God. And they must be held by God because it looks like all the circumstances around them are not worthy of any trust. It looks like the distresses and the unexpected twists and turns show the instability of those things being our refuge. So, what is the example of the psalmist? 
The psalmist again and again turns to God as refuge. And one of the ways we call upon God as our refuge is we come to him in prayer. And in verses 1 through 5, there is a prayer that is prayed from a heart of integrity. The psalmist insists on it. It's not a conclusion we merely imply. We take the psalmist's words at face value where the psalmist is saying, I'm in a situation and I did not commit wrong to bring it about. This is a righteous sufferer in Psalm 17. This is not someone who is experiencing the judgment of the Lord because they've done evil and therefore they have reap, they're reaping what they've sown. This is a prayer given from a position of innocence with regard to a certain matter. In verses 1 to 5, this prayer and that context are clear. Hear a just cause, O Lord, whose cause is the psalmist taking up? His own. His prayer is with reference to the particular cause or matter that is weighing upon him. And it's a right cause. It's just. There's nothing that he's bringing to God that is something malicious he's asking God to bless. Or something wrong that he, the psalmist, has done that he's saying, Lord, why are you treating me this way? That's not the language of this psalm. His cause is just. And he prays for God to hear it. Attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer. Verse 1 contains three expressions in quick succession about prayer. Hear, attend, give ear to. He wants the Lord to answer with deliverance. And his prayer at the end of verse 1 is prayed from lips free of deceit. Now, who has the lips free of deceit in this psalm? In this psalm? Well, we would certainly say the Lord's words are always words spoken without deceit. But this verse, this verse is emphasizing the psalmist's words. The psalmist is saying, I am praying to you and what's coming out of my heart and from my mouth are not words mixed with my own maliciousness and in, uh, in actions of wrongdoing that have brought about this situation. I'm being surrounded, O oh Lord, and there's a just cause I want you to attend to. Give ear to my prayer. These lips are free of deceit. And David is asking then for God to attend, to hear. And what would that look like? Well, if... If we look at verse 2, here's what David believes the hearing would would, uh, be followed with. From your presence, let my vindication come. Let your eyes behold the right. You see, here's how confident David is in praying. He knows the God who sees all things, the God who now sees David's circumstance. God looks upon David as the persecuted righteous sufferer. He doesn't look at David and say, David, you know, the reason you're just such a fool, actually, and you've strayed from the path of righteousness. And that's really why you're in this situation. No, he's confident in his prayer that from the presence of God, vindication would come. The, the actions of assault and, and, uh, and threat are not coming from Yahweh, but from the enemies of the righteous sufferer. So here's this king, this king who is a type in the Old Testament Of the coming Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, the ultimate righteous sufferer. The one whose life had neither stain nor sin, as we sing in the song, Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery. And we've heard these words this morning and reflected on the coming of the King. And this mystery, this reigning and dawning of the King, was foreshadowed 
by the suffering righteous king, David himself. David is not free from sin like the Lord Jesus would be. And yet David's circumstances are not circumstances that in Psalm 17 are a result of his unbelief or his rebellion. He says, Lord, let my vindication come. He sounds like Job being so confident in Job 19 that he will stand before God in a renewed and restored condition. And that in vindication, his enemies will be shown to be those who were not right and whose accusations failed. We don't have the details here of what David is being accused of that he wants a vindication for. But we know that he knows God is righteous and God cares about righteousness, therefore. And God loves his people in that steadfast covenant love. So David comes to God because God is righteous. He keeps his promises and God has all power in heaven and earth. David says, God, I need you to hear my cry. And David is coming to God with integrity. He's not living in rebellion against God and then find himself in circumstances and he said, well, you know what? Prayer here could be useful because I've been living in rebellion against God and I really don't like the consequences that are uh, unfolding. David doesn't look at God as some sort of extraneous trinket he could employ in times where his rebellion seems too much. David loves the Lord, is committed to righteousness, and David knows in his prayer to God, God is a defender of his people. And the wicked should tremble. And David prays then for vindication. And he says in verses 3 through 5, more language that indicate the integrity behind his prayer. He says, you have tried my heart. That is language of smelting. Smelting. It's the language of taking um, materials, metals, and having fire upon it that reveals the purity over against any dross or impurities that need to be removed. You have tried my heart. David says you could, with regard to this situation, put my heart through this smelting process. And you know what you would find? You have tested me and find nothing in verse 3. Now you you can look at this as many Bible readers have over the, the years and you think this seems like a bold and maybe even misguided claim. What's David doing? He seems to be portraying himself as sinless. You've tried my heart and you don't find anything wrong? Well, we have to consider the context here and what David means and what he doesn't mean. The writer of Psalm 17 is the writer of Psalm 51. And so the the psalmist here who says you have tried my heart is also a psalmist who's turning from sin and repenting before God as he commits transgression. And this means in Psalm 17, he's not claiming sinlessness. To be without blame is to be without blame with regard to this. To be tested and tried with nothing to to, to be found with regard to an accusation that sticks is only in the context of this psalm's concern. So we need not be bothered by this language. We need to simply remember these are contextual and occasional comments. This is not David making a, a, a pronouncement about the state of his heart before God in some sort of comprehensive way. God, you can search my heart. You will not find anything wrong. You know, that's, that, that's, a, that's a misunderstanding, I think, of his point. Other Psalms confirm that. He says, you've tested me and you'll find nothing. There's also language here in verse 3 about visitation. You have visited me by night. And and you might find that at the night time can be the time when someone would surprise 
a person in their home. You have an unexpected guest or, God forbid, an intruder. And here, this image of visiting by night, I think it pictures the the unexpected arrival to search and to to examine thoroughly. Uh, Someone uh, gave an illustration in uh, in one of the, the commentaries I was looking at this week about auditors. Imagine uh, an inspection needing uh, to take place for your books and records and procedures and someone arrives for a thorough examination. Uh, That's an appropriate picture here. You have smelting, all right, and then you've got thorough examination. David is saying, you can open up the records here of this circumstance and I will come out clean. I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress. What's David's commitment? David's resolve is to live in humility before God, in honesty before God, and not with speech that is corrupt toward others. And as the king, there's a special weight to this, because the king's words have very broad scope of influence. If the king's speech were to be malicious and wicked, not just the king's life, but many lives under his reign could be terribly affected. It is good for David and good for everybody under David's authority that he is committed to what he says in verse 3. Purpose that my mouth will not transgress. Why is it that David has such resolve and that his words and his actions are without blame with regard to this psalm? Verse 4 is David's explanation. With regard to the works of man... By the word of your lips, I have avoided the ways of the violent. Why is it that David's lips or his words are what they are? Because David attends to the words of Yahweh. You're carefully looking here in verse 4. By the words of your lips, where do we find the words of God? David knows, just like the blessed man of Psalm 1, God has made himself known in his word. And David's heart is committed to the words of the lips of God. And when we open the scriptures, the holy scriptures give us the words of God to which we should commit ourselves that we might come before God with lives of integrity and devotion and trust those who are living God willing in righteousness and set apart holiness. He says, with regard to the works of man, by the word of your lips, I've avoided the ways of the violent. It looks like others around him have not avoided the ways of the violent. They're quite committed to it, actually. And so the ways of the violent, that's what occupies the schemers and those with the agendas against David. How has David avoided the path of the wicked? Because his heart is committed to the words of God. And friend... That's not just a a simple and basic way to think about it. That is what Psalm 1, Psalm 119, and a host of other scriptures teach about how our lives avoid paths of foolishness. The words of the living God revealed to us from Genesis to Revelation are not things that are some part, sometimes, in, in some degree relevant to you, but are daily, ever relevant to our lives. We need the words of God. That we might say with David, by the words of your lips, God, you have spared me from the paths of folly, the paths of the thief, and the violent, and whatever else. We think about the paths that open up before us 
that our flesh might be drawn toward. What is David committed to? The words from the lips of Yahweh. In verse 5, this is the conclusion or the effect of his commitment to the words of God. My steps have held to your paths. My feet have not slipped. Don't you want lives of spiritual stability and focus upon the kingdom of Christ? That you might flourish in the word of God and with the people of God. Friend, I must implore you this morning. The Bible is not an optional thing with that goal. It is absolutely integral that we be people of the word. By the words of your lips, I've avoided the ways of the violent. So if he hasn't taken their paths and their ways, then what what have David's paths and steps look like? Well, in verse 5, he says, my steps are on your paths, Yahweh. My feet aren't slipping. I'm I'm committed. I am focused. I am seeking after you. This requires a deliberateness. I mean, he's he's following God on purpose. This isn't some kind of passive coasting through his life as someone who professes to know Yahweh in some kind of abstract way. No, he trusts in Yahweh. Yahweh's his refuge. He prays to the Lord, loves the words of God. And what that establishes are his feet upon righteous paths that establishes his feet in verses 1 to 5. And it gives him a heart of integrity in coming to God in prayer. In verses 6 to 9, he's praying for God's protection. In verses 6 to 9, he says, I call upon you for you will answer me, O God. He's not coming as some entitled person who's coming to Yahweh like he's going to order God around. This is confidence. This is not arrogance. He's he's confident that God hears him because he is of God's people. And he knows what God says about God's covenant promises and love toward his people. It's unwavering. So whenever David comes to God, he knows he shall be heard by God. I call upon you. You will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me. Hear my words. He says in verse 7, wondrously show your steadfast love. O Savior of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. Showing steadfast love is his prayer. Show it, God. And wondrously so. Show your steadfast love. Because David is in covenant with God. God has made promises in the word of God that David knows. And David, in light of that, comes to God and calls upon the Lord. And calls him to show his steadfast covenant-keeping love. He calls God Savior. The Savior of those who seek refuge. God is the Savior of whom? Here's the answer in Psalm 17, 7. God is the Savior of everyone who has refuge in Him. That's the answer. God is Savior of all those who have refuge in Him. He is righteous judge of all those who have refused Him. Don't refuse the Lord. Find refuge in Him. There is no other refuge than God from the judgment of God. Wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior, of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. Just to be clear, the word right hand here is where the refuge is found. Those who seek refuge at your right hand. It's not the place where the adversaries are. The adversaries at your right hand. That would be a misreading of the verse. Even though all those words together, you you could read it that way. That wouldn't be the right take. The refuge at your right hand from their adversaries. 
The Old Testament emphasizes God as deliverer and displayer of his steadfast love. And every once in a while, there are enough words that occur in a passage where you think something earlier is being specifically recalled by the biblical author. And it is likely that Exodus 15 is being alluded to with this verse. In Exodus 15, they have just, as the Israelites, walked through the Red Sea on dry ground. The waters have parted, the Egyptian armies have been judged, and the Israelites on the other side have been a recipient of God's merciful, saving power. His right arm and right hand has been exercised on their behalf in that mighty way. That's Exodus 14. In the very next chapter in Exodus 15, they sing to God a hymn. And in Exodus 15, here's what they say. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand and the earth swallowed them. Referring to those, the wicked armies coming. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you've redeemed. You've guided them by your strength to your holy abode. You see, in this small amount of hymn, lyric, and praise, here's what we find. The language about wonders, steadfast love, and the right hand of the Lord. And here in Psalm 17:7, David prays, Wondrously show your steadfast love. O Savior of those who seek refuge from your adversaries at your right hand. We have reference then to wonder, to steadfast love, and the right hand of God. Why does David use language in the psalm that pulls all of this language together? Because he knows that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the God of the Exodus. And he knows that the God of the Exodus is the God who's in covenant with him. And so he prays that the God who delivered all those Israelites would give him in this circumstance. It's as if David is saying, Lord, I'm facing this. I cannot deliver myself. Will you part the Red Sea for me? Will you come, O God, with your might and power and once again demonstrate wonders and steadfast love by your right hand? David knows that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the God of Moses and the Israelites, the God of the Red Sea and the Exodus, this is the God David loves and serves. Oh, this God is a worthy refuge, isn't he? A faithful refuge. It's as if David is calling for his own Exodus. In verse 8, we know that verse 7 alludes to these Old Testament ideas about Israel because verse 8 gives even more. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. This is very particular language from Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy, the Israelites and Moses leading them, they heard this language about God's relationship to the people. He, God, found them in a desert land, in the howling waste of the wilderness. And he encircled them and cared for them. And here's what we're told. Deuteronomy 32.10. And he kept them as the apple of his eye. And like an eagle that stirs up his nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings... And catching them. There is a care and a guidance and a protection. In Deuteronomy 32. About being the apple of God's eye. And about being in the wings of God. Spread out. Here you have in Psalm 17.8. David says keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. What verses 7 and 8 are doing. Is demonstrating to us. That the earlier scriptures are shaping the way David prays. In other words, David, when he says, 
I have avoided the paths of the violent by the words of your lips. His prayer demonstrates that the words of God are upon David's mind and heart. They're coming out in his prayer. Keep me as the apple of your eye. The apple of the eye is a thing to be protected, to be treated as precious. In fact, the apple of of your eye uh, ultimately refers to the, the pupil that you don't want to be affected and harmed in any way. If you're in a situation where something is coming toward you, especially rocks or dust, small fragments of something, you might be shielding your face and especially mindful of your eyes. Keep me as the apple of your eye is is language of protection. God, care for me. Protect me. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. Hide me in the shadow of your wings from the wicked who do me violence. Verse 9. From the wicked who do me violence, my deadly enemies who surround me. It sounds so ominous, doesn't it? I don't think David is looking into the future and thinking, you know, it's possible that difficulties will come my way. He's looking at his present. He's looking at the present lay of things and he is presently surrounded by threats. From the wicked who do him violence, he wants deliverance. From the deadly enemies who literally have surrounded him, he wants God to be his refuge and to be kept in the shadow of God's wings. There's a sense of refuge and safety, a sense of peace and tranquility that can overcome the heart of David despite the circumstances beyond his control. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. Friend, I think that David is... In this psalm, helping us see that not only he prays this because of God's covenant love, when we recognize who we are in Christ, that we are beloved of God, clothed in righteousness, not our own, secure in a new covenant, pardoned from sin by the finished work of Jesus Christ through our faith in him, by grace delivered from darkness to light, we are those who can pray in Psalm 17, 8. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. And we can trust with utter confidence that in our union with Christ, our prayer is always heard. God loves us and surrounds us with grace and power. And His Holy Spirit preserving and guiding, encouraging and anchoring. We have a sound refuge. In verses 10 through 12, here's some more about God's enemies that are coming around David. What are they like? And having surrounded David, why are they so fearful? Well, let's describe them a bit. And we'll see how ominous they really are. In verse 10, he says, they close their hearts to pity. And their mouths, they speak arrogantly with them. If you were to look in a spiritual x-ray machine upon the heart of the wicked surrounding David, these are not people of compassion. They have no mercy toward David's situation. They only mean to overcome him. They only mean to subdue him, to destroy him. Their hearts are not open to and animated by compassion and love. They are closed to pity, which means pity is not what you find there. Their mouths, connected to their hearts spiritually, speak blasphemously, arrogantly, presumptuously. They think they're invincible. They are haughty. And their arrogant words have surrounded David. In verse 11, they've surrounded now our steps and they've set their eyes to cast us to the ground. 
That's an image of being absolutely overcome. That's not taking, you know, that's not taking a, a, a slap or, or a punch from the enemy here. To be cast to the ground is to be overcome and subdued. Evil is seeking to triumph over the seed of the woman. And David here, he's representative as the king over Israel. He's representative of God's righteous ruler here and a type of the one to come, the Lord Jesus. And those who have surrounded him, we think about, can you consider the scene at Calvary? How indeed those that have surrounded the righteous sufferer have closed their hearts to pity. With mouths they speak arrogantly. They cast to the ground the Savior, so to speak, that with this metaphorical desire to overcome Him, they have brought up a cross. And in verse 12, David says, Like a lion eager to tear, as a young lion lurking in ambush, they're like this. He refers to the wicked as a singular reference here. He, the wicked, like a lion, a predator, We think of David here so many centuries before the Lord Jesus living in such a way where he is surrounded by the evil one seeking to overcome and his call for vindication and his confidence in God. And we think about the Lord Jesus. We think about that cross and his suffering. We think about those who sought to ambush and conspire to overcome and yet prayer for vindication to be answered. Where the finished work of Christ would be followed by the third day deliverance. That this David who longs for vindication would be followed many centuries later by the son of David. The prowling lions would surround him and all the religious leaders and the Roman armies who sought to overcome the son of God would try their best but in vain subdue him. He lays down his life. No one takes it from him. He lays it down only to take it up again. And at his return to overcome all evil. David is calling for the Lord to bring a judgment even then in Psalm 17. That in his circumstances, God would arise. We've seen this language, right? We've seen enough Psalms in book one where arise, O Lord, starts to sound like a refrain we've noticed earlier. Multiple Psalms, Psalm 3, 7, 9, 10, all all these Psalms use language arise, O Lord, and it's language rooted in the Old Testament. Earlier scripture tells us in Numbers 10 that when the armies would set out with the ark of God before them, Moses would cry out, Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee from you. What is David again praying? Friend, he's praying the words of the Bible. He's praying the words of the Lord that they are upon his heart and mind. They're coming forth from his lips. He's calling for the God whom he loves and with whom he's in covenant to answer and to arise. In verse 14, in verses 13 and 14, this call for judgment looks like this. Confront him, that's the wicked. Confront him, the wicked one. Subdue him. Deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword. From men by your hand, O Lord. From men of the world whose portion is in this life. David is calling for the Lord to confront and subdue. David is a king with an army at his disposal. You know what David's confidence is not in? His great military might. He doesn't say, well, you know what? I know other people might be in a tricky situation and they might need to actually be people of prayer. But you know, I've got all these armies and chariots and swords and shields and spears. and You know, I'm fine because I've got these things to uphold my confidence. David's confidence is in Yahweh. And he calls for Yahweh to subdue. 
So here are these wicked who want to cast David to the ground. David says, oh God, bring them to the ground. Subdue them, Lord. Deliver my soul. Subdue them. Deliver me. Deliver me from the wicked by your sword. From men of your by uh, from men by your hand, O Lord. We know the wicked nature of these people because they are called those men of the world. This is a very particular phrase about where their hope is, where their strength is. Look carefully at this middle part of verse fourteen. The men of the world whose portion is in this life. And by that they mean their portion is in this life only. They're men of the world because it's the things of the world that have entranced them. It's the things of the world that they live for. Their hope and refuge is not Yahweh. They they are men of the world. This would be contrasted with people who are of the kingdom of God. People whose refuge is the Lord and not in the things of the world that are passing away. These who surround David, what are they like? They are people whose inheritance or portion is this life only. I think that's confirmed by the latter part of verse 14 and the contrast with David in verse 15. These men of the world in verse 14, he says, You fill their womb with treasure. They're satisfied with children and they leave their abundance to their infants. This is... This is uh, in a reference to things of the earth, worldly treasure, satisfied with children in the abundance to their infants, with a focus on the things of the earth. The reason their uh, treasure has to be left with abundance to their infants is because they themselves can't hold on to their treasure. They die. And whatever they gain is given to another. Their portion is in this life only, and this life doesn't last. So verses 13 and 14 are a call for the Lord to judge the wicked. And one of the ways they're identified is that they live for the world. They love the world. And the exhortation from the Apostle John in 1 John 2.15 to us is that the believer would not love the world or the things of the world. And the things of the world there are unpacked in 1 John 2.15-17 as the things dishonoring to God. The wickedness of the world and the pride of life and the corruption of desire. Things that would be cultivated and nurtured and lived out with zeal and commitment by the wicked in this world. John says, don't love the world like that. These wicked are those who are known as having a portion in this life only. But you see, David doesn't have a portion in this life only. No matter what happens, he will eventually go to the dust And his body will sleep in death. He will be disembodied at death. Because his soul and body are to be separate. And this this, uh, separation of body and soul. Will be followed by the powerful working of God. That the Old Testament and New Testament teach. Of the resurrection of the dead. I think this is what verse 15 is reaching toward. Verse 15 is David's contrast. He's not like the men of the world. Whose portion is only in this life. What's in view for David? Verse 15 says, As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. David's confidence here is to behold the presence of the Lord. 
that David will behold in this way that the Old Testament writers have as a longing for the people of God. That to behold the presence of God is to dwell with God in an unmediated way. To have the glory of God reflect upon us. To have all things that had been corrupted and corroding our being from the inside out overcome by His power and grace. And that we will be all that God has created us to be. David says, I shall behold your face in righteousness. David, in this language, in righteousness, means not only righteousness counted to him by faith, but beholding God's face or to dwell in the unmediated presence of God in glory. This is something accomplished by the work of God that is begun in Christ, completed in glorification of his people. So I think we need more verses to bring to bear on verse 15 here, which is what I'm trying to do by alluding to these concepts. David is confident he will behold his face, the face of God. When I awake, I think this ultimately means resurrection from the dead. I shall be satisfied with your likeness. So whatever glory is in store for David, David longs for it. The people of the world who live for this life only, their hope is not in God. And their future will not be to live in the glory of God. But David's is that. It is that. And not only is this David's hope and David's future, it's our hope and our future for all who have the faith in David and the God of the Exodus. The end of Psalm 16 and the end of Psalm 17 are interesting to look at together. Because at the end of Psalm 16... It says in verses 9 through 11 that God is not going to let his holy ones see corruption. And he has, in verse 11, made known the path of life. And in his presence, there's fullness of joy. And at his right hand, pleasures forevermore. When Peter preaches in Acts chapter 2 from Psalm 16, He preaches the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Because this psalm, this psalm of David at the end of Psalm 16, has a resurrection bent to it. That this longing to dwell at the right hand of God in everlasting joy and pleasure, in His presence, fullness of joy, this path of life is accomplished by God overcoming death for His people. And and He has overcome death... In human history, by raising Jesus of Nazareth from the dead on the third day, Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection of the dead. So when we see in verse 11 this path of life, fullness of joy in the presence of God, we come to the end of Psalm 17 reflecting again on the presence of God. Beholding the face of God in righteousness. Awaking to be satisfied in the depths of our being with all that God will be for us eternally and age upon age. How is this accomplished? Well, if we read Psalm 17 in light of what the preceding Psalms have laid out for us, we are those rooted in an unshakable life because we will be raised from the dead to behold the glory and presence of God. And in that we shall dwell everlastingly. And Therefore, we come in confidence to God and we pray. We come to him as our refuge with hope, looking for strength that he would preserve us unto that glorious day. The wicked should tremble. They don't have God as their refuge. If God were to visit them by the night, all of their guilt would be unfolded before them. If he were to try their heart, their rebellion and their unbelief would be revealed. One of the ways that God reveals those things through us, in us rather, is by the hearing and preaching of his word. 
We might be those, even this morning, who are not avoiding the steps of the violent and wickedness. Our feet have slipped in some major ways because we are not pursuing the Lord. Psalm 17 is an example of someone who fears the Lord, loves the Lord. And by these words, may God stir within us to long what David longs for. That we would have our hearts refuge, our heart having refuge in God and longing for vindication. That we would say with David, keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. And when I awake on that glorious day, when my body rises from the dead, I shall behold you in righteousness. And we will know then, just as we know now, that all of the good work God has begun and will complete in us is never for our own merit and by or rooted in our own works, but all due to the precious and merciful work of Jesus. We behold the face of God in everlasting glory because of our union with the Lord Jesus Christ. Friend, come to Christ. Trust in Christ. Have your refuge in God. Hope in God. Don't be a person rooted in the things of this world merely. Your portion will be in this life only. Instead, come to God for whose glory and name you were made. Be a worshiper of the living God. And that by the words of his lips, you would be guided and directed in paths of righteousness. Because the word of the living God will not lead us astray. We can read it and know it. Learn it and study it. Meditate on it and hope in it. Trust it because God never fails. And we can come to God with hearts of integrity. Longing for him to guide us in ways that are faithful and righteous. The Lord inclines his ear. He hears our prayer. Let's go to the Lord in prayer together.